Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 17th, 2012, and my guest is John Taylor of the Hoover Institution and Stanford University. His latest book is First Principles, Five Keys to Restoring America's Prosperity. John, welcome back to EconTalk. Great to be back, Russ. Thank you. Our topic today are the idea, is the ideas in your new book, uh, First Principles. So let's start with the five keys that you identify as being important for prosperity. They all center around the idea of economic freedom, which is the, by definition, a situation where people can buy what they want, sell what they want, work where they want, um, help people in the way they think is best. But that's within a framework that includes these five keys. One is that the policy be predictable. The decisions are made within a predictable policy framework. Second is that there's an emphasis on the rule of law, so you know what the law is actually stating. Uh, third is that the emphasis is on markets. And um, a, from a economist perspective, markets are a wonderful way to get decisions made in an efficient uh, way. They also provide the fourth idea, which is incentives. Incentives are, should be the focus of any economic freedom framework. Uh, and then finally, the fifth is a, a limited role for government, a specified role for government, um, which delineates what government should do and what markets should do. Your book traces the history of various periods of relative intervention and relative freedom, and we'll get into that in a minute. But I want to start by asking you a, a question about those five principles. Do you think that any of your ideological or interventionist opponents, people who are more interventionist than you are, would disagree with any of those five? Yes. Uh, I think there's, um, for example, it would be, well, maybe predictability is not that important when there's a emergency. You just got to do what you got to do. Uh, anything goes. Uh, there's uh, clearly differences on the scope of government and uh, what the role of government should be. And so I think there's quite a difference. And uh, I just in the last uh, few weeks have had some, I think, uh, good debates with Larry Summers, who has a more interventionist approach. You can see that in these discussions. And so he would put, put uh, less emphasis on them, I believe. That's the way to put it. Not that you wouldn't think the rule of law is important or predictability is important. It's, um, it's how much emphasis you put on those. One of the ones you mentioned, the temporary uh, versus permanent, uh, strikes me as, in principle at least, possibly a, an idea that could be somewhat immune from ideological or uh, philosophical differences. Uh, you'd think that most economists would favor permanent interventions versus temporary ones simply because planning takes place over more than tomorrow. It the future matters a lot, and if you know what the rules of the game are and you think that they're going to be the same for a while, you're more likely to act than if you're uncertain about what the rules of the game are going to be. And yet it seems that despite that 
seemingly obvious fact of human nature and decision-making, I see a, a big difference between interventionists' willingness to impose temporary uh, short-run interventions of unknown duration. Uh, do you think – is that a fair assessment of people who disagree with you? Yes, and, I think it's – and I don't think it's partisan. And why? Uh, and why? Yeah. I would say the idea here is um, we all know from economics that people – uh, like to have cert- more certainty about what policy will be. They can they can do their planning themselves. But I think people who emphasize that, well, that's maybe not that important, we're, are going to stress the the emergency. I mean, take the bailouts, for example. You've got to go in and do the bailout even though you're setting up a situation with less predictability and, and more moral hazard. They'll say, well, we can deal with that later. Uh, a lot of it has to do with that kind of, uh, of thinking, and, and there is a difference of opinion uh, about that. And for me, one of the reasons to do this book is just to go through history and realize how harmful a lot of those interventions have been. Uh, not every one, of course, but the, sort of the deviations from the predictability. You know, we've seen it in the past, and it didn't work. And when policy has been more predictable things have been much better. So to me, the evidence is just so clear. Uh, that's, and, and it can be explained to people using just history. It doesn't have to be a lot of economics. And and I think that's... But the reason, uh, to go back to your question, is that some people think you just have to go in and do it and, and just not so worry about the, the implications of that for next year or the following year. Yeah, I, there is... Um Definitely political pressure, which we'll talk about. Let, let's turn to that history because I think it's uh, really a, a a fascinating part of the book. I should mention to listeners, the book is short. Uh, it's I think about uh, 180, 200. How, what's the what's the length? Like 200 of the book? pages, yeah. Yeah, but it's a short 200 pages. It's it's a wonderful uh, sketch of recent economic history plus some policy recommendations as well as laying out of the principles. And I found the history part to be uh, fascinating because you were either in Washington at the time in some role, not always the decisive role, but certainly in various roles. So you had contact with the people who were making the decisions, or you have as colleagues now uh, people who were very much involved in making these decisions. And one of your themes is that one is the virtue of rules over discretion – and then the political forces that sometimes intervene. So I thought we'd go through some of the episodes you talk about in the book and talk about that mix of rules versus discretion, which is a big underlying theme of the book, and also um, the political influence that sometimes uh, affected policy instead of the economics. So let's go back uh, well before some of our listeners were born, but not all, uh, to the Nixon administration, which was – on, in some dimensions, a, a market-oriented, free market-oriented uh, set of policymakers in that administration, and yet Nixon imposed probably the most obviously awful uh, policy change uh, for years around that time, which was the example of wage and price controls. So how did that happen? Uh, talk about what actually did happen and sure. why it was important and how it happened. Well, Nixon uh, came in um, with a 
more market-oriented philosophy. He had people like Milton Friedman and uh, George Shultz advising him. And they were quite excited that this was going to get away from the more Keynesian, less market-oriented uh, things that began in the late 60s and uh, and really took form of wage and price guidelines, uh, temporary uh, interventions, monetary policy got quite active. Um, and the hope was that this would be a change. And Milton Friedman, for example, wrote in Newsweek in early 1971 that this is going to be great. We're moving away from all the excessive fine-tuning. We're going to rely more on markets, uh, and it's going to be a good decade. And then what happened is Nixon um, was persuaded that uh, it's going to take too long. Um, and Schultz, you know, would later talk about it as the you know, economist lag is the politician's nightmare. And so the politics uh, really got in the way, and, and Nixon said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait uh, this. I'm not going to just let monetary policy uh, get inflation down. I'm, I'm not going to just sit back. I'm going to do the kind of things that got popular in the in the in the, in the 60s um, with the, the the more Keynesian approach. And uh, and then in August 1971, imposed this wage and price freeze. And of course, it led people like Milton Friedman to really withdraw that Newsweek article he wrote earlier in the year and say, "This is the worst timed piece I've ever written." <laughs> which he did, and uh, and came back in in the way uh, someone who was candidly assessing it would have to do, and uh, and so as as a result, we continued with this. I guess I would call it interventionist, uh, less uh, focus on markets, uh, and uh, and unpredictability, less rule of law, all those things, which uh, which took a long time to get uh, get rid of. It was another decade, and the wage price controls. Uh how did those manage to get uh, approved despite the um, the quality of some of uh, Nixon's advisors? Well, Nixon had other advisors who were less concerned about the principles. Uh, as uh, Conley, um, for example, the over at the Treasury, you asked earlier in the conversation about does everyone believe in the principles? And I think, you know, you were asking about economists, but clearly some people don't think these are principles are important. They don't think about economics that much. They don't think markets are that important. And and so as a result, uh, they they went away from that direction. But I think it was political, and the idea is that it, it was going to take some time to get inflation down. Uh, and uh, and they didn't want to wait. They were worried about the election coming up. And so they went to this more shortcut route, which... Uh, was popular at the time, by the way. You know, when the when the freeze was announced, well, this is great. Business liked it, labor liked it, and it 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 didn't take too long before people realized what a bad idea it was. But at the time, it was remarkably popular. So that um, the seventies didn't turn out quite as cheery as uh, as uh, Friedman had hoped. If Nixon had stayed no. on the path, although we have to mention that the sixties had. Very good growth rates. Um, the the mid sixties, which were the time of of the you know the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, before Nixon came in, uh, those eight years, the economic advisors were very Keynesian in flavor. Uh, they were fine tuners. 
they also were big spenders, not necessarily those economists, but but Johnson clearly expanded government's the size of government through the Great Society, although much of that expansion was transfer payments, not so much real spending uh, on real resources, but still was increased the tax uh, burden. And um, the economy did very well. So you would argue, though, that that set that laid the seeds for the the problems that came later. Or, or Absolutely, would, and and also there there were things in that period. I mean, the the tax cut was a permanent reduction in marginal rates. That was a good thing, I think. You're talking about the Kennedy it, tax cut. Yeah, the Kennedy Johnson tax cuts. They basically were were good. They were permanent. They were uh, like a counterexample to all the other interventionism that began. And by the way, of course, you did have uh, monetary policy at that point at the urging of the administration became much more active. And uh, Martin, who was the chairman of the Fed at the time, began to have a more inflationary policy. Inflation began to pick up around 1965-66. You can see that noticeably in the data. And so that was a change which is related to me. It's remarkable when you go through this history. Is all policies tend to move together? You got more interventionists on the fiscal side. You, you argued that you needed discretion on the monetary side, and, and you mentioned the the intervention of the government in the um, you know healthcare system expanded quite a bit at that point in time, and so all these things move together. And, and uh, I find that's one of the most remarkable things about the history. It's not just fiscal policy not just monetary policy. They moved together. Well, certainly the, a lot of the, the people in power at that time were optimistic and enjoyed uh, intervening. So it, it would be beyond just one area. You're right, yeah, the, the important question about when you're in a position of responsibility in government, um, there is the um, – the urge to intervene is there. You're, there's a, a, a tendency to do something, and uh, it's very real. And it's the hardest thing is sometimes is the right thing is not to take a specific action, but you've got a good policy in place and you stick with it. But the, the, one of the most difficult things in implementing these principles, even for people that, that believe in them firmly, is there's so many pressures and temptations, political and otherwise, to to do something and and intervene in ways which are inconsistent with the principles and you you have various reasons and excuses for doing it. Sometimes through a compromise, you know, you do have to run a government and people might disagree with you, so there'll be decisions made which have uh uh look like they're deviating from the principles, but maybe for other reasons. And I go through a number of those examples. There was a temporary tax rebate in the Ford administration. Not the kind of thing that his chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Greenspan, uh, would have liked on the surface, but he went along with that idea. Uh, hopefully, the, an exchange would be to reduce spending, but it didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, I, I, I like to, I like the examples you give of Greenspan, and I, mainly because, because of his intellectual past and his. Uh, relationship with Ayn Rand. He's viewed as this um, near anarchist. But when he got near Washington, D.C., his rhetoric didn't quite match his actions. And I have talked in the past about his support, say, for the Mexican rescue of uh, 1995, which he testified in front of Congress that 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 was uh, a bad idea, but had to be done anyway. 
And similarly, he, he was – there were many, many times he deviated from what we would call free market principles. Uh, in this case, he, it was a, he was more of a Keynesian than he perhaps uh, felt in his heart endorsing a um, temporary rebate. Um, but that was not the low point of the Ford administration's economic policy. Uh, that would have to be the whip inflation now campaign, and you discuss um, his the speech that Ford made to announce that program. Talk about the program and the speech and the economic policy behind the scenes. Well, this is the case where the economic advisors were not enthusiastic, in, including Greenspan, because it was harking back to wage and price guidelines and controls. But the program was um, called Whip Inflation Now. It was um, really a hope that somehow people would cooperatively, voluntarily reduce inflation uh, as a matter of um, just a national mission. And it, it's in patriotism. The, in, in, yeah, in retrospect, it just sounds so strange. But <laughs> President Ford went before a joint session of Congress uh, with his pin, whip inflation now pin. On his lapel, uh, and yeah. pleaded with people, and you know, just retrospect, it's it's it is very unusual kind of policy, but it's certainly just an example of how um, policy had moved in a in a direction way against, uh, in this case, sensible rules based monetary policy, uh, less reliance on markets, sort of less faith in markets. Um, and and you can see it so clear. Just so many examples of this. Actually, you didn't ask about this, Russ, but you know Arthur Burns is another one uh, person yeah. who is a good economist. Uh, you know, he's the mentor of Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. If you ask who influenced me to Milton Friedman, who influenced you, he'll say Arthur Burns is my first teacher as an undergraduate. And here's a guy who, under Nixon, and then as Fed chair under Nixon, went around saying the markets don't work. We need wage and price controls. So it's amazing things happen, um, and that's why these principles are so important. It's just people should demand that their public officials uh, follow them, understand them, and then follow them because there's temptations to move away from them. Burns at the time was chair of the Fed, correct? Yes. Um, how long was he chair? Do you remember offhand? Uh, it was about eight years. Um, Which period? It's uh, through the 70s until... J. William Miller, uh, he uh, sorry, Burns replaced Martin, uh, appointed by Nixon to the Fed, and then uh, continued until J. William Miller um, was appointed by Carter, uh, and then he didn't last very long until Volcker came in, and of course the Volcker appointment uh, is is really moving back to a more sensible policy, and that that uh, gets close to the Reagan administration, which is a whole other yeah, we'll come to enormous that. period of of interest. Yeah, we'll come to that in a sec, but I, I want to stick with uh, Martin and Burns. Martin was the chair under Johnson, um, and I, if I remember correctly, uh, when I interviewed Alan Meltzer uh, about his history of the Fed, Martin would – and you certainly second this point uh, – Martin was very eager to uh, keep President Johnson happy and liberalize uh, the monetary expansion at Johnson's request in – in trying to finance the war in Vietnam rather than raising taxes. Is that correct? He did definitely move to an easier monetary policy compared to what he had in the 50s when he was chairman and in the early 60s. And it was uh, 
partly because he liked the idea more of cooperating with the administration. Uh, it seemed to be part of his his view of monetary independence did not preclude that. And, and you're right, Alan Meltzer writes about that quite persuasively in his book. And you know what I observed here is if you look at the at the numbers, you definitely see the impact of monetary policy inflation starting to pick up. And you also, if you go back and read, it's a very interesting document, uh, the 1962 Economic Report of the President. That was the first report with President Kennedy, and Walter Heller was chairman. Jim Tobin was on the council, and it's beautifully written, persuasive document of why you needed to have a discretionary monetary policy. And, and that, so that was part of the persuasion, I believe. It wasn't purely political. It was making an argument on economic grounds, an incorrect argument, I believe, but that was what was uh, affecting policy. Interestingly enough, and I write about this too, 1962 is the same year that Milton Friedman wrote Capitalism and Freedom, which is a completely different philosophy than uh, than was being being put forth by um, the 62 Economic Report of the President. Uh, but of course, the Economic Report of the President is what prevailed in terms of policy. And capitalism and freedom, of course, was at that point very much a voice, and Milton's voice was very much a voice in the wilderness. Uh, yes. And it must have um, – one of the things I think is so admirable and inspirational about Milton is that he wrote that book. It didn't make very much of a splash in the academic world. Uh, it was published by the University of Chicago at a time when academic presses were not even as mainstream as they are now. So it was sort of a philosophical book in in, in some dimension, and um, it just sat there. It people read it, and over time, many of the ideas in that book uh, became, instead of being viewed as crazy or kooky or bizarre, became mainstream, and many of them were adopted. Although when I interviewed Milton, he was distressed to think of how many weren't adopted, but that's that's his perspective. And I just think the yeah. the fortitude. And goodwill. It, it, it took a while, and but you know, eventually it caught on. Um, actually, in my view, we've gone back again a little bit at this point, which is distressing. But that's later on in the story, I guess. Yeah, but I think the, the good news is uh, there's always hope. You know, think how distressing it must have been to be Milton Friedman in 1963 and 64 right, and exactly. 65, right. and see people not paying attention to your ideas and in policy ignoring them totally, on the seemingly on a very uh, unhealthy path, and yet the pendulum swings back now and then. And then, uh, and then also, Russ, uh, being positive because you've got someone coming in, Nixon, who you <laughs> think was going to change things, <laughs> yeah. and then completely disappointing you again. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So we we get to um, Nixon, uh, of course, leaves office in disgrace in 73, 73, or 74, 73, I think. We get Ford. Uh, Ford's policy is uh, inept, uh, and then he's followed by equally or perhaps more inept policy, which is the Carter administration. What did the Carter administration do that was so unhealthy economically? Well, they now continued with enthusiasm the fiscal interventions. There was um, a program to give grants to the states for infrastructure so that that would stimulate the economy. There was first-time Home buyers' uh, uh, policy, temporary thing to stimulate the economy, the jobs, a credit of some kind. 
Uh, it was very interventionist Keynesian, if you like the word, the interventionist Keynesian. And, and it was like, more so than uh, Ford. Um, at least the Ford advisors were uncomfortable with it. But uh, Charlie Schultz came in and replaced Greenspan as chairman of the CEA, a very fine man, but he had, um, in my view, uh, thought about this intervention too much. I was there at the CEA and the staff, both Greenspan and, and Schultz, both Ford and Carter, and could see the change uh, coming in. So they continued with it, and it didn't work. They also uh, continued with the monetary policy, which even got worse uh, at this point. Burns was staying on at the Fed. Uh, and that continued for four years until, you know, you had, now you really had a terrible economy. The confidence was dropping, uh, unemployment rising, inflation rising, and, and uh, eventually, I think people saw the wasn't working. Carter's own advisors would write pieces later saying that those policies didn't work. And that Gramlich um, uh, analyzed the grants to the states, shows that they didn't work. And so we got away from those things, and and uh, fortunately, things got better. And of course, those assessments um, turned out to be temporary, not permanent, about the effectiveness of state um, intervention right. or temporary tax rebates or special credits for home buying. Um, well, yeah, we came back to them. I think it's, it's in a sense people forgot, uh, or this the the pressures of uh, of something else took off, took over. But it's disappointing. I think from an economist's perspective that these studies were there and people just either forgot about them or ignored them 30 years later. John, when you talk about uh, monetary policy getting worse in the in the mid to late 70s um, uh, under Burns un, in the Carter administration, uh, how would you quantify that or what would be the measure you would use? If I said to you, uh, show me why that wasn't so good, what would be the – how would you tell that story? I just got, it was a go stop policy. The the Fed would uh try to reduce unemployment by stimulating money growth. Um other ways to measure it you you have you could look at interest rate rules and interest rate rules were way way off in terms of what was a sensible policy. Too low if you like. And then and then they'd uh see inflation was picking up and so they'd stamp on the brakes and you'd have a recession and um very frequent recessions, and at each step, uh, inflation would rise. And you know, by the end of this period, and going into the to the early '80s, because it took some while to undo it, unemployment um, was in double digits, inflation was in double digits, interest rates were in double digit, and and economic growth, productivity growth, had, had by that time begun to slow substantially. So there's a lot of evidence of bad times, and I think a lot of evidence that monetary policy was not rules-based, it was short-run oriented, highly discretionary. And on terms of monetary policy, there's many indicators to show that, including these interest rate rules, which which I talk about in the book. And we get to the end of the 70s where we have stagflation, we have simultaneous inflation and stagnation. The economy's either in recession, but even when it's growing, unemployment stays high. And this was, of course, deemed to be impossible by some variations of Keynesianism that there was supposed to be a negative relationship between inflation and um, and uh, unemployment. In fact, I, I still hear people tell me that it's obvious that when the government prints money, it has to create jobs because people spend it. We know spending creates jobs. And yet, both Zimbabwe and the United States at the end of the 1970s managed to have both high inflation and high unemployment. 
And this right. was a, became a big challenge to in, in the in the academic literature to the Keynesian model. Interesting. In 1968, Milton Friedman in the Presidential Address to the American Economic Association outlined why it is not uh, going to reduce unemployment in any sustained way to to have higher inflation or higher money growth. And that's also a really beautiful paper speech. Yeah, it's a classic. And by the way, and by the way, that there's only three pages of that. Uh, talk, which are on the inflation and unemployment issue, the major part of that talk is to urge a steady-as-you-go monetary policy, because Milton had shown how powerful monetary policy can be in terms of causing you know, good and bad, and he, just, he was concerned that, as people realized that, that you were going to move into one of these go-stop discretionary policies. So the main point of that speech was, don't do that. Do, do this more steady, kind of steady-as-you-go, and it's exactly the opposite of what happened. It took it took this point to a decade, twelve years to, to to get to the right approach that he recommended. So Volcker, who is appointed by Carter, and we have to you have to point out also that even though the Carter administration was very interventionist in many ways, it also did it under Alfred Kahn so the, the the seeds of the beginning of deregulation, which Reagan yeah. continued, but certainly it started under Carter. So. In all these stories, there's there's a mix of uh, of good and bad depending on your philosophy. But uh, Volcker, who is um, is chair of the Fed under Carter, is stays on under Reagan and follows what is a very uh, politically challenging um, monetary policy. Uh, what was your Schultz quote? This is now we're talking about back to George Schultz. Um, Economic economist economist lag lag is a politician's nightmare. So that took place in the 1980s. Reagan had to endure the 1982 midterm elections of extremely unhealthy economy, partly created by Volcker's attempt to wring inflation out of the system. Correct? Yes, Uh, absolutely. And and there was, uh, I mean, the times then when Reagan came in, and and you're right to point out that uh, some of these decisions were made. Under President Carter, um, he appointed Volcker after all. But I think here the fact that Reagan supported Volcker during these very tough times is very significant. Uh, very unusual for a president to to do that. He he basically sort of didn't try to encourage the Fed to work to get unemployment down. He knew that they were going to do the right thing by reducing inflation. And so I think here's a case where the philosophy of the administration helped monetary policy, unlike, you know, back in Johnson-Nixon, where it hurt, hurt, it hurt the policy. So it's, it's really monetary policy, in this case, following, I think, a much better rules-based policy under Volcker, focused on inflation. Uh, that was what he needed to do. That's what he did, and it was tough. But he had the support from the White House. Now... I, I'm pretty sure that that the LBJ Martin confrontations took place in the White House. That that LBJ had Martin in his office and and berated him. Uh, that's my memory. Maybe it's wrong. Uh, but did do you know if how much Volcker and Reagan talked face to face during this time period, say eighty to eighty three, when there was this would normally be political pressure on Volcker to ease up a little bit. Very, very little uh, in, in, this, in the sense of uh, certainly no 
um, sense of uh, telling to ease up. It was it was just the opposite. Um, if not now, when it would be the kind of things Reagan would be talking about. And also, remember here you have uh, some very important advisors for with Reagan, including Friedman, including Schultz. And including Tom Sowell and Art Laffer, uh, all these people who had strong uh, market uh, sense and, and what you really do to get the economy moving again. And he, and he also appointed, you know, some Chicago PhDs over to the Treasury, Beryl Sprinkle, uh, for example, had that for more of a, of a monetarist uh, yep. approach to him. And the CEA you had, you know, Murray Wiedenbaum and Bill Poole came later, um, Scannon. Jerry Jordan, people who had uh, really were quite strong and was sort of what needed to be done, and if you stuck with it, and 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 Reagan had outside advisors uh, through this whole period, which encouraged him to stick to this. So it's an example where where the the principles that were held by Reagan, and he came in that way. You know, he would give many radio addresses and speeches with down-home stories describing why these same principles that I've tried to articulate in, in, in with these five points, basically Reagan talked about those kinds of things in his own way and was firmly committed to them and, and surrounded himself by people who uh, who had the same basic orientation, and, and that's what it took. And I have to, you know, I have a feeling, again, this is just pop psychology, but it may have been beneficial that Reagan, like a Milton Friedman, had spent a lot of time in the wilderness. It was a different wilderness. It was a political wilderness, um, but had been had come to the presidency later in his life and after a long time of trying to uphold what he thought was the right thing and writing about it, as you say, and speaking on it. And I think it would have been – I think it was both harder for him to walk away from those principles and less appealing to give in to the short run – Though having said that, of course, he did many things that were not particularly free market. He expanded the size of government. He didn't cut spending successfully. Uh, he put tariffs uh, – it's not tariffs – voluntary quotas on Japanese cars. So he had his own deviations as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, and I think that's always – when you look at the history, you've got to you know, make some judgment calls about which were the important things. And so here I would say he did remove the last uh, vestiges of the wage and price controls on – Energy. Yeah. He did not have a stimulus packages. Uh, uh, he encouraged the Fed to, to you know, to focus on the uh, on, on monetary policy, which I would call more, more rules based. And certainly, in terms of of, um, of of emphasizing markets and less regulation, he certainly continued with the things that that Carter began with. So. So it's a, it is a judgment, and that the, the Reagan tax cuts, although sometimes they're advertised as being based on a Keynesian idea, it was not Keynesian. It was permanent. It was it was not uh, temporary, targeted stuff, and that's that was I think large in, in assessing it. But you're right; it's not perfect, and you have to you know, get your principles in there as best you can. And I think, but in this case, there's such a contrast with the '70s. Um, it seems to me, and it, and it went beyond Reagan. I think it went into President Bush forty-one, and in many respects, it continued into Carter and, and until relatively recently. Uh, sorry, until Clinton. Clinton yeah. Until yeah. So, I'd love to keep talking about the history, but I want to get to some of the policy recommendations. But just one closing point: uh, I want to come back to this issue of temporary versus permanent that you just alluded to. Um, when you trace the whole history of these last three and a half decades or so, going back to the 
either the Kennedy, Johnson, or Nixon starting there and coming forward, there, there's a, a striking number of temporary interventions, um, tax breaks, tax rebates rather than rate cuts that are up by definition one time, uh, ad hoc programs such as the home buying program or uh, cash for clunkers in recent years. Um, and the academic support for these programs, as you say, at many times there was enthusiasm for them, for these project for these programs, sometimes from economists of various stripes. But there's really remarkably little academic support for these programs when the empirical evidence is looked at, especially when we take them one by one. So these principles you're talking about, there's a lot of general agreement, but a lot of particular disagreement. But when you look and that makes it they're, and they're complicated. So as you say, there's judgment calls. So it's sometimes hard to assess. It's inevitably there's going to be issues of confirmation bias and cherry picking. It's hard to you can't measure these things precisely, but we're better at measuring individual programs with a little more precision. And it seems to me, and maybe it's just my bias, but there's remarkably little evidence <laughs> to support uh, any of these programs and it, from left or right, and yet they keep happening. You're right. Well, I think that's the, that's the thing is you have these broad trends that compare the 70s and the 80s and 90s, compare the 80s and 90s where we are now. That is all consistent with these principles, et cetera. But then in addition, you have, when you look at the individually, what are, you know, cash for Congress or what happens to be, you see that it, at least it's controversial. I think they don't work, but at, at least there's huge controversy about it, and, and we're still doing it. And, you know, the amazing thing to me, uh, you know, there's a, a very famous paper I refer to in my book is by Tom Sargent and Bob Lucas, who later won Nobel Prizes in 1978. They wrote this paper after Keynesian macroeconomics. It was a devastating critique of those kinds of policies. And it, and it made a difference. Uh, and at least we moved away from them, and, and here we come back now, and we're doing it all again, um, as if we've completely forgot. So there's something else going on here besides the economic research, that's for sure, Russ. And uh, and you reference and maybe a- what you need to do is just to have a, a, a better, broader understanding of this uh, beyond the the equations and the econometrics, just to look at the history, which is again what I'm trying to do here. And you mentioned, I think, a paper by Alan Blinder. Uh, that was. Do you remember that paper you referenced? Which one? I don't remember. Sure. Well, he, he did a couple. One, first of all, he showed that the wage price um, freeze and and um, those controls just didn't do anything uh, lasting. Maybe made things worse. Uh, so that intervention didn't work. And he also did work on the the small effects of these temporary rebates, et cetera. So those two things that that he looked at. Um, and I'd say even even after that, there's you know also it's small at least it's something it will be the kind of thing that you you would hear uh, later and and he certainly has been supportive of the um, Keynesian interventions of recent years. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we move on to some policy recommendations, I have to raise a question that crosses my mind from time to time, and I, I don't I don't have a a strong empirical evidence for it, but. There's some casual empirical evidence, and and that is the temptation to to say it's all monetary policy. All of this other discussions about fiscal mistakes or fiscal stimulus or um, various interventions, 
if you get the monetary policy right, things go well. If you don't, it's it's over. <laughs> um, and and you know I'm a big uh, fan of the argument that moral hazard created by past bailouts created the current mess we're in. But I'm open to the possibility. And I probably asked you this question before. That just the whole thing is bad monetary policy. Well, I've certainly emphasized that a lot, and um, it's it's I think a major factor leading to the financial crisis and also the slow recovery now. It's obviously was a big factor of the problems in the in the seventies. It's actually interesting, Russ. It is probably the most difficult, arcane part of the whole discussion to explain and talk about. It's a People, uh, you know, regulation, uh, temporary tax cuts, things like that, you can talk about and explain, but, you know, monetary policy suddenly get into an area where there's becomes, uh, I think, more difficult to explain uh, to people. Uh, politicians tend to get a little less interested in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it is probably the most important of all. Uh, well, yeah, I think it's not only more difficult to explain. I think it's more difficult to understand. Uh, I think that's part yeah. of the reason it's more difficult to explain. It is yeah. somewhat mysterious. Um, and, you know, we're in this strange time now where we have unprecedented uh, Fed intervention, and yet, despite the enormous creation of, of reserves uh, through the Fed and on the balance sheet of banks, and you talk about this in the book, um, it doesn't seem to have done very much, partly because they've encouraged it somewhat to sit on the books via paying interest on it. And uh, I ask this every time. I, it continues to mystify me. And I'll ask you again, why do you think the Fed carried out this unprecedented intervention and yet watched and encouraged, if anything, its lack of impact? Well, they think it's had impact on the purchasing of the mortgages or the Medium-term treasuries. Uh, they focused more on the what they did with the money rather than the creation of the money. So they would argue that it lowered mortgage rates. It would lower medium-term treasury rates compared to what otherwise. So that's that is the rationale for it. I think for the most part on their side, and they figure on the the creation of money side of the equation, the other side of the balance sheet, that they'll be able to undo that in time before it causes problems and. Many people, including me, have doubts about that. Well, yeah, wait, today is today is April seventeenth, uh, two thousand and twelve, and I just got uh, an email about a, a news article in the Wall Street Journal and MSNBC's coverage of this issue that the Fed has finally released its transcripts from the two thousand and eight uh, key meetings of two thousand and eight, of which I think it's a five hundred and thirteen page transcript and. Virtually all policy discussion has been, as they say, redacted, which is a fancy word for blacked out and unreadable to the general public, that what's left is, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Okay. So that part they didn't black out. So it would be interesting. Uh, I assume someday we will get to hear at least what they said were the justifications for some of the policies. It's going to be very important to, for people to go through that, and I think investigative reporting can start a little earlier than that, but yeah. it's so important to get that straight out. Yeah, I, I would encourage uh, members of the Federal Board of Reserves to talk uh, candidly off the record, So, uh, but that's, um, that's not really my area. Uh, let's move on. Uh, we've talked on the show before about uh, the Taylor Rule and your uh, – your particular um, – your study and uh, recommendations for getting 
discretion out of monetary policy and having it be more rule-based. What you talk about in the book that I think is novel, besides going over some of the basics of that, which are important, but what's novel is you try to give an idea of how one might actually implement uh, a more rule-based monetary policy. So talk about, uh, other than the idea that certainly uh, less discretion is a good idea, how how could you hold a f- the Fed's feet to the fire? What What I think is most important is that the Congress ask the Fed to describe its strategy, and then if the Fed decides to deviate it, that they must explain why. Those are the two parts, explaining it, what it is, and then if they decide to deviate, to explain why. I think that would go an enormous way to having a, a more rules-based policy. There, There is very little information about what really the strategy is it's being used now, for example. The quantitative easings are very hard to describe, uh, but even interest rate policy. So those, those are the two steps. It's, um, it's actually uh, in the uh, past, the Fed had to do that with respect to money growth. It had to describe its plans and then describe if it deviated. That was taken out of the Federal Reserve Act in the year 2000. So my proposal is to to reinsert that, but in a more modern way, where the Fed itself would have, it would have, of course, it sh- as it should have, the um, decision to make about what the policy is, what the strategy is for setting rates, what they're going to actually do under certain circumstances. They would, it's their responsibility to do that. You don't want the Congress to micromanage uh, along those lines, but you do want them to to work it out and describe what it is. That that's my main main proposal, and I hope I hope something along those lines happens. So, given the uh, the political temptations we've talked about, one way to look at this change would be to just to introduce a very modest amount of accountability that was lost in two thousand. Right. Um, you talk in the book, and it's quite interesting because you, of course, have a personal relationship with Alan Greenspan. You know him. You've talked to him. Um, you talk in the book about his deviation from past uh, steady on the steady as you go monetary policy and, and his his adventures of uh, the two thousand and three to two thousand and one to two thousand and three period two thousand three two thousand and five and one has to wonder what role that two thousand change in policy of accountability played in giving him the freedom to do that. It certainly could have been a factor. It's, um, it, I think another thing that I would point out and talk about in the book is the record was quite good for um, you know the 80s and 90s and until this period. Uh, and Greenspan succeeded Volcker, and and I and I think he you know it was a situation where he had to find out how to run monetary policy in this low inflation environment and he made like the 94 or 5 interest rate increase 1994 1995 that was very well timed and a number of other things so i think what happened in this 2003 4 5 period is they actually tried to even do better it's it's this perfect becomes the enemy the good problem and they deviated from what was working in order to i think try to make it work even better they 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 thought that keeping rates low extra long uh, would reduce some downside risks. There was various ways to put it. And I, I think that's what happened. And perhaps it would have been harder if there were these um, 
procedures in place where they had to report their strategy. I think it would have been. But uh, but the motivations for doing it are complex. And also, if you talk to different members around at the time, they have sort of different views about what happened. Ben Bernanke was uh, an influential member of the Board of Governors at the time, and he has, he has different views about why they made these decisions. Have you heard or read anything about why that 2000 change happened? Oh, it's yeah, it's a very uh, simple. They that had focused on money growth, and money growth itself had become harder to measure because of the different uh, ways to define money. There had been alternatives to with the credit card development and other ways to make payments, and so they just felt that they were spending so much time stating what the growth rates would be, and then they'd find out they were off and had to explain why. So it, I think it made sense to at least change them. They just removed them. I think in retrospect, it would have been better to replace them with a, a better way to describe the strategy. But but the reason they took them out were pretty clear. I, I don't think there was really very much complaining about that at the time at all. I certainly didn't complain about it. Well, it seems... On one level, it seems reasonable. On the other, it's kind of shocking. It's like, well, it's really hard for me to tell you how uh, – it's really hard for me to set set my policy um, and then to be accountable. So let's just not have to describe what I'm doing. Right. That does make right. it easier. It does solve the difficulty <laughs> problem. That's strange. It's a good point. Um, yeah. Well, let's, um, let's move on to some uh, specifics moving forward. Um, you have a famous uh, chart in the – book, which you reprint from, I think, a Wall Street Journal op-ed that you wrote uh, that has an ominous picture of the ratio of the national debt uh, to uh, GDP, uh, where it's basically relatively flat, a few bumps, and then it takes off like a, like a, uh, uh, a rocket, unfortunately, much of which is, right. is forecasted debt uh, because of entitlement promises. Uh, talk about that. Is the national debt uh, the level of it, a threat to our prosperity, and why? Absolutely, absolutely, if, especially if it goes along the lines of that chart, which has the debt-to-GDP ratio going above 100, above 200, above 300, uh, so interest rates become the whole, interest rate payments become the whole budget. So that that's not sustainable, but that's what current law implies. So it is a real threat. Um and it's got to be fixed. I think that it's in terms of fiscal policy that should be the main focus at this point. And what I try to do is say, well, you know, you can fix this in a in a in a some sense a very simple way. Just bring spending as a share of GDP as a share of GDP back to where it was before the crisis. That's 2007. That would be 19.5 percent of GDP. Do that in a gradual way. Kind of outline how that could occur. Uh, it's not austerity in any stretch of the imagination. But oh, come it would on, John. Undo this, explore, undo this um, Nin- explosion. John, 19.5%, there'd be people starving in the street, old people dying, uh, mass starvation of poor people, um, children well, going in rags. 19.5%, you remember what that, 2007 was like the Middle Ages. Well, that's, that's what we're led to believe, <laughs> but I think if just you think you know, common sense, Ross, is what you're espousing here sensibly, just tells you that can't be true, right, 2007. And so that's that's what I try to explain. And, you know, people, I think people understand that, you know. They just say, hey, why is this so hard? Why, why are we, why aren't we getting to this even faster than what I propose? Yeah, so you, you um, the big debate we're going to hear about this summer, I suspect, 
we're already hearing it now is, yes, we have a budgetary problem. And the common sense view is, well, we have two tools to close the gap. Uh, we have spending cuts and tax increases. So a wise middle-of-the-road approach is to use both. Why not? Why not uh, use both? You argue much for much larger spending cuts rather than tax revenue increases. Why? Well, actually, remember, I want to bring spending to uh, as a as a whole to two thousand several levels of the shared GDP, and 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 by the way, that's growth, of course, because GDP has been higher. So use the the word cut uh, in a, in a way that his growth rate is slower than it otherwise would be. But the reason is that we now have an exploding. It's, it's government spending is projected to explode on entitlements, largely the health care. And so – For demographic – purely demographic reasons, not ideological reasons. Uh, it's, I think, not just demographic because some of these entitlements are growing in real terms per, per beneficiary. Like yeah, Social Security true. is growing in real terms per beneficiary. Um, a, a 45-year-old now is projected to get a lot more under current law in real terms, inflation-adjusted terms, than a 55-year-old. So it's more than demographics, and that's why it's, it shouldn't be that hard to fix. Healthcare, it's not just demographics. It's, it's, it's projections of rising costs of healthcare. So, um, so that's why I think that uh, it's mainly on the spending side, and, and I argue it's completely on the spending side because as a matter of, of just arithmetic, uh, so much of it is that way. And, and so just if you could just hold the growth rate down so, so we don't expand as a share of GDP, you can do without increasing taxes. And, of course, that's better for going back to some of my principles for incentives, um, for the role of government, all these things to, to keep, keep tax rates at um, a level that they, have, that they were roughly in, uh, in 2007 or, or, or even 2000. I don't think we can measure it, but it, the uncertainty, and we've talked already about uncertainty, temporary versus permanent, but certainly the uncertainty about how we're going to resolve this issue, and that uncertainty is a political reality because yes. there's going to be a debate. We don't know how that debate's going to turn out. That certainly has to affect the state of the economy now. I think it is. I think it is a, a real um, drag. You do not know how this exploding debt is going to get resolved. Um, and I believe if it's if it is massive tax increases, I don't think that's likely. Quite frankly, I just I just think we we're kind of debating um, at the edges here um, about how how much the tax increase will be. I, I think the right thing is is to focus on the on the spending growth, uh, stopping the explosion. And I think that it will also, by the way, if that's done well, will make people's lives better. The healthcare reforms. Uh, using markets more, decentralizing the decisions on Medicaid to the states, for example, will make those programs work better. And so that should be a positive, not a negative. It's, it's not austerity. Yeah, let, let's. Well, yeah, one man's austerity is another man's growing government. Uh, yeah. No one has actually, uh, maybe other than Ron Paul, I don't think anyone has proposed anything remotely like austerity. We certainly haven't practiced it, uh, and yet somehow austerity is the fault of this is causing a slow recovery. Just the thought of it evidently is enough to <laughs> discourage economic yeah. activity, which could be true. Of course, future expectations do matter, but I don't think there's any much of a prospect of it actually happening. Um, let's talk about health care reform. 
we don't know what's going to happen to the to Obamacare. It, it may survive its um, its judicial Supreme Court test, and it may survive the next election, but it may not. Uh, if it did not, and if there was an opportunity for an alternative, what kind of alternatives do you think could be put in place uh, that would slow the growth of healthcare spending and keep the size of government down? Personally, I'd like to see Medicare and Medicaid phased out, but you're more of a centrist than I am on that. So how would you uh, move toward toward an improved budgetary picture? On the um, Medicare, uh, both sides want to keep the growth rate from exploding. And uh, one side, and this would be more the House Republicans at this point, want to do that by providing a certain amount of funds which grow over time and then having people decide what kind of health care insurance policy they buy and Medicare. And so it decentralizes. The decisions are not made in Washington, but the total amount of money is clear. The other side is the decisions about how to control spending are made in Washington, but really effectively price controls and decisions on what appropriate care. And so I think in this case, again, going back to these principles, focusing more on markets and on incentives, the first approach is going to work better. On Medicaid, uh, moving the decisions to the states uh, makes a lot of sense. You'll get, I think, better performing uh uh, lower cost as a result of that. Then is it on the on the private sector side or or sort of non Medicare non Medicaid, which is a big part of Obamacare. Uh, you certainly could save a lot by allowing insurance to be purchased across state lines. I think there's still a lot to do on the reform of the mal malpractice um, uh, legal side of things. I think also uh, providing deductibility for insurance. Uh, or other medical expenses for outside of the employer would would uh, would help the coverage quite a bit. So I think there's quite a bit to do to keep costs down and to provide better medical care without putting 16 million more people on Medicaid, which is what the current proposal is doing. You know, a lot of people think you do better uninsured than on current Medicaid. So so there's a lot of problems with it. But uh, the kind of thing I just outlined, I think, is an alternative which could be quite workable, but this is going to depend on the election, of course. Yeah. In your book, uh, we're almost out of time. I, I want to go back to an historical episode that you mentioned in the book that we've not talked about, which was in advance of Reagan uh, becoming president, a number of economists got together and uh, wrote a document encouraging us, us various policies. Uh, it's hard to be optimistic about such an effort today Mainly because the likely Republican frontrunner, likely nominee Mitt Romney, does not have a history of adherence to these principles the way Ronald Reagan at least did on paper through his own speeches. What's your feeling about where we're headed? Uh, and, and my view, by the way, is that I'm not sure how important it is who wins the next election. It, it will matter. But it seems to me that whoever wins, uh, Democrat or Republican, will face some of these constraints regardless of their professed philosophy. I think the, the memo you're referring to uh, was written just after the election in 1980. Uh, Reagan's advisors wrote him a relatively short memo, about 20 pages, um, outlining what they thought would be good for policy and had tax policy, budget uh, regulation and monetary for big issues. 
And it did stress a lot of these principles that Reagan had before, and which which I'm trying to articulate in this book. It was a very well done piece of work. I don't see why that couldn't happen again. I don't see why a a platform along those lines couldn't happen. I think the it's very promising to me that at least from this perspective that uh, there is uh, this House budget out there that uh, has some of these principles in it. And so that can be part of the debate. And to the extent that uh, the nominee, um, Governor Romney, gets close to those and articulates those, and he has already begun to do that. He also recently gave, I think, a good speech along these lines on 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 so-called economic freedom. So I, I think that the message here, by the way, I think the message I outlined in this book is not partisan. It's that these principles are, they work. And regardless of party, you should be trying to elect people uh, that um, adhere to the principles and know how to deliver them. And and it doesn't have to be, it's not partisan in a, in a political sense of the word. And in fact, historically, you just go back to what we talked about in this in this. Uh, Show Russ in the you had the late sixties and seventies. You, know, you had Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, both political parties. More recent in, the, in this middle period, you had Reagan, uh, Bush forty one, and uh, Clinton. And in and then now you had at least towards the end of the Bush administration and uh, Bush forty three and Obama. You have you don't know exactly when it happened, but it's certainly different. And so. I think if people recognize that this is so important to get right and just get the right people in there, that it, we can make these changes. So I'm a little more optimistic, I think, that I hear you are in your question that we'll be able to do it. But obviously you have to be realistic and step away from it to, to make the assessments. My guest today has been John Taylor. John, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.